Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast. In this week's episode, I speak to Professor Jennifer Murtasashvili, who is Professor and Director of the International Development Programme at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. Her research explores questions of governance, public administration and local institutions with a geographical focus on Central and South Asia and the former Soviet Union. Jennifer's first book, Informal Order and the State in Afghanistan, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. A second book, Land, the State and War, Property Rights and Political Order in Afghanistan, is under revision and is co-written with her husband, Ilya Murtashifili. Professor Murtashifili's current projects include research related to the unexpected role of bureaucracy in conflict-affected states, local governance and social institutions in Central Asia and the geopolitics of Central Eurasia. Jennifer also serves as an elected member of the Central Eurasian Studies Society Executive Board. Her research reflects extensive field experience where she has lived on the ground for five years in former Soviet Central Asia and about three years in Afghanistan. She has collected diverse types of original data, employing a wide range of tools to answer important policy questions, ranging from ethnographic fieldwork, interviews, focus group discussions, public opinion surveys, as well as field experiments. In addition to academic endeavours, Professor Murtasha Svili remains deeply engaged in public policy. For three years, she has served as a democracy and governance officer for the US Agency for International Development in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, a Peace Corps volunteer for two years in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, and for more than a year as a senior research officer at the Afghanistan Research and Evaluation Unit. She has also served as an advisor for a number of organizations including the World Bank, U.S. Agency for International Development, U.S. Department of Defense, U.N. Development Program and UNICEF. She has a Ph.D. in Political Science and an M.A. in Agricultural and Applied Economics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And in this episode, we delve into her work on democracy, especially regarding the current situation in Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. And at the timing of this interview, which took place on the 13th of December 2018, Jennifer was in Uzbekistan. So not only do we talk about Afghanistan, but we, we delve into her work in Uzbekistan and discuss the economy, as well as the resource curse and the Nirvana fallacy. Why not check out all the links, books and resources mentioned in this episode over at economicrockstar.com forward slash Jennifer. And I'd like to give a big shout out to James Reinmiller, who is a current patron of the podcast and is supporting the show over at patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar. And if you want to find out more, why not go to that link, patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar, where you can support the show for as little as $1 per month. So again, thanks very much for listening and enjoy this episode with Professor Jennifer Murtasha-Sfili. You have to carry on. And this is devastating and we are so sorry. This is unfortunately part of our life. And right now we're going to hug you and we're going to hold you and you're going to do this panel and you're going to get through this despite the pain that you're feeling because that's what we owe ourselves because we can't let this kind of thing destroy us. And if we stop what we're doing, it means that they win. Hello, Jennifer. Welcome to the Economic Rockstar podcast. Thanks for having me. Jennifer, um, I'd love to know about your background in terms of how you got into economics and your work on democracy. Mm -hmm. And what led you to that point? So I, I was actually uh, led to this point but through the study of foreign language. Um, I studied Russian when I was in high school, actually, and uh, then I went to, to university at Georgetown in the U.S., where we had a foreign language requirement in order to graduate. And I continued to study Russian, and I actually got terrible grades in Russian. Um, and I studied abroad in Moscow during my junior year of college, and that was when the war in Chechnya uh, kicked off. And when I was studying Russian, I'd never heard about Chechnya or Chechens. This was something very new to me. And I realized that there were a lot of Muslims living in the Soviet Union or what was the former Soviet Union in Russia. And yet 
being trained as a former former Sovietologist, we never really learned about these people. So that really piqued my interest in um, Islam, political Islam, um, democracy and minority groups um, throughout the former Soviet Union. And it spurred my interest in Central Asia, which is where I've spent pretty much the past 20 years of my life doing research. So, um, and I, I, after university, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. I was sent to Uzbekistan where I taught English for two years as a uh, high school teacher in the city of Samarkand on the old beautiful Silk Road. It was a beautiful place. And then um, when I was finishing the Peace Corps, I was hired by the U.S. Agency for International Development to manage the U.S. government's democracy and governance portfolio in Uzbekistan. So I actually stayed in Uzbekistan for five years after I finished um, my undergraduate work. And then and I decided to go back to graduate school to study political science. I'm actually uh, a political scientist, but I did a master's degree in agricultural economics while I was in doing my PhD and um, found myself banned from Uzbekistan. I was unable to return because there was some political upheaval in the country. Um, right around the time there were these colored revolutions and the government here was quite afraid of them. I'm actually in Uzbekistan right now, so I'm saying here. Okay. Um, and, uh, I was able, unable to return really for about 15 years. So I spent the past 15 years or so working on Afghanistan because when I was in the Peace Corps in Uzbekistan, I learned a dialect of Farsi called Tajik. And Tajik is a, a dialect of Tajik and Farsi is what's spoken in Afghanistan. So that language skill allowed me to do a lot of field research in Afghanistan. So I consider myself really a Central Asianist um, by background, but I focus on um, questions of political economy. And just going back to why you were kicked out of Uzbekistan or not allowed to back into the country, is this because of the upheaval and is it because they didn't want any foreign, what could have been seen as foreign diplomats or foreign academics into the country? That's correct. So in 2005, there was an uprising called the Andijan Uprising. And during this period, there was a, in the town of Andijan, there was an uprising of, a, of several thousand people against the government. And it was right around the time of the Rose Revolution, the Orange Revolution, all these colored revolutions were sweeping the post-Soviet space. And the government became very scared of those uprisings. And because of my uh, background with U.S. government democracy promotion, I was really unable to come back. I was unable to get a research visa. So actually, when I was in graduate school, I had defended my dissertation prospectus, which had included uh, substantial work in Uzbekistan. I had received grants. I was ready to go. And then I was denied a visa to return. And my visa denial, I, I suspect, had much to do with my previous work here on uh, issues of democracy and governance. But of course, I wasn't the only person who wasn't allowed uh, to return many of the U.S. government programs that, that involved democracy promotion. And most foreign academics, Western academics, were not able to continue doing work here. So if you had stepped into the country at the time, you could have been arrested? Yes, I, I wouldn't have been, even been let in the country because I couldn't even get a visa. Okay. And so you pivoted then to look at Afghanistan. Is that because you had lost interest in Uzbekistan at the time, or was there something going on in terms of correlations with your work in Uzbekistan and what it's sim with the similarities that was going on in Afghanistan at the time? Yes. In fact, um, my, my, my original dissertation perspective was comparing Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Afghanistan. And what I was interested in, and I still remain very interested in this question, is how governments try what what uh, understanding the relationship between government strategies and self-governance community self-governance and if you look at a map um the three three countries are all right next to one another they share uh, borders they share languages they share cultures they share history they share tradition um and so if you go to communities in rural areas you will find some similarities between the way communities govern themselves and their customary forms of uh, self-governance. And I had spent time in rural Uzbekistan and rural Tajikistan, and these are former Soviet countries. And I was reading a lot about what was happening in Afghanistan. 
um, in the early 2000s. And what I had read seemed quite similar to the things that I had experienced in the former Soviet Central Asian republics. So I was interested in looking at how government strategies affected self-governing arrangements. So um, I was able to, my dissertation actually only ended up looking at Afghanistan because it was the only country, well, it, that's a, I decided just to focus on one country for the dissertation and because I had the visa problems, I decided just to forego the others. Um, but it was because I was really interested in this particular issue. From the PhD, you wrote your first book, Informal Order and a State in Afghanistan. Yes, that was the that was the product of my of my dissertation. That was the dissertation that became the book. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice heading, Informal Order. It's very it makes someone very curious. Well, it makes me curious to what that actually means, because it's almost <laughs> like um, the theory of chaos. They look at order within the chaos. And you're not necessarily talking about chaos here, but if you have order, you expect that order to be in some kind of formal setting or formal arrangements. But there's something curious about what you've written here on informal order. And is that because of the setup of governments or local governments within Afghanistan based on communities? Yes. So I want everybody to just take a second and close your eyes and, and forget everything that you know about Afghanistan. Because we think of it as this place of chaos and disorder. But if you were go to go to a community in rural Afghanistan, you would find fairly predictable social order, rules that are well known to people in their communities, and uh, even among different communities. So within districts, for example, people tend to know one another, and there's a pretty well-defined set of rules. Um, this actually surprised me when I started doing my field research because everything that I had read about Afghanistan suggested that these long-lived um, you know, customary orders, traditional forms of governance, and I'm sure if you think about the stereotypes we have of Afghanistan, the pictures we have in our heads of these white-bearded men with turbans leading communities, um, many of the, much of the literature on Afghanistan said that this had been wiped out during the course of the war, that it was no longer there, and that villages were sort of this tabula rasa. And this was the rationale for much of the state-building effort that we've seen over the past 17 years, and especially the, for the first six or seven years after 2001. It was this idea that the international community, together with the Afghan government, had to come and fill this governance vacuum that existed in villages. And I was interested in how aid programs and the government, <clears throat> the Afghan government were trying to fill this space. But what became quite apparent to me, even after doing a few weeks of research in just a couple of villages, not far outside of Kabul, um, was that villages are actually, these customary systems endured during the war. And um, as people were returning to Afghanistan after 2001, what they started to do, because there was mass migration during um, the anti-Soviet jihad in the 80s. And once again, during the 1990s, there was a civil war. And during the Taliban period, after 2001, many people started to return um, or, or many people started to come from other urban centers where they had fled or people were just coming out of their homes because they were very repressed, for example, under the Taliban. So what I found was that communities were reconstructing their social order, and they did this very quickly. Um, so either it had never gone away completely, or uh, so this was sort of a, mis, uh, a misdiagnosis, a misdiagnosis by many of the observers of the country. But what people also did is they reconstructed it. So they quickly returned to their communities, they rebuilt these social institutions, and oftentimes what they did is they gave them new names. So for example, if you had a village leader that you would call a Khan which may have signified like a large landowner. What many communities did was they renamed these things um, to be uh, Namayenda, which translates as representative, which is a very sort of different kind of, it sends a very different kind of signal, right? A large landowner versus a representative. Hmm. But what I found was that communities, um, they recreated their old social orders. And sometimes these community organizations had new names, um, but oftentimes they didn't. And, but, but what happened, what changed fundamentally were citizens' expectations of these organizations. So they, citizens were no longer content just to be subjects of a faraway state or to be subject to any kind of feudal lord in their communities. 
um, they really wanted ownership of what was happening in, in their communities. And so these, the customary order that they recreated after 2001 was actually quite deliberative, quite open to, um, and quite flexible to citizens' needs. And it really surprised me. So then this whole desire to create a state, to create local governing bodies, um, to create new community governing councils that the international community tried to do after 2001 really seemed to be duplicative of self-governing arrangements that I found in so so many communities. I can imagine if people were coming back to their communities after being displaced, that not everyone would come back. Perhaps they stayed or um, they died in conflict. And there might be a land grab would there be a little bit of a chaos or say yeah. a, a shift in terms of social status based on who comes back first and who sets up the new community and who's, who becomes the new representative as opposed to a leader and the reawakening or maybe the awakening of the fact that there's no strict authority if there was some kind of authority there? And that people are freer and can make more decisions based on what they want to do. Exactly. And this is precisely what what happened in many communities throughout the countryside. So um, there's a panoply of different players, warlords, you have large commanders, you have these jihadi commanders who controlled swaths of territory, and they had associated, you know, drug dealers and drug smugglers and, and criminal elements, uh, many of whom wanted to grab land from people who had left. Um, and then you had many migrants who had returned, who um, had families, who settled on lands of large landowners, for example. So you had land grabs sort of going in both directions. And uh, so I'm actually working on a second book right now uh, with Ilya Murtazashvili. It's called Land, the State in War. And it's on property institutions and political order in, in rural Afghanistan. And one of the things we look at are is uh, the focus of the book is on informal property rights and how in individuals and communities were able to secure property rights during this very tenuous period when the state has been very weak. And so you find that, um, you know, there is sort of this first mover advantage of people coming back and claiming land. But on the other hand, there were social norms, right, that um, – People could look back. They had uh, communities actually had pretty good records of who owned what land and they could have debates. And, um, you know, in many communities, I found that this customary fora provided a, a place and a space for people to deliberate about land ownership where you found the most more violent conflicts over land tended to be more in urban areas. And this is actually where the state has more of a presence and where the state became involved in adjudicating some of these issues and in urban areas state has the land has much more value than it does in rural areas and this is where many of these land disputes became much more contentious some people might argue that democracy could be more harmful for example that if a country has been operating successfully in terms of social norms through maybe smaller communities or an authoritative figure that that could bring about I don't know, extended peaceful times between communities, but then there's always the restrictions in terms of freedom and mm-hmm. the ability to have free speech or the free movement of labor and capital and freedom to think and become entrepreneurial. So there's always, whether they exist or whether they didn't back in Afghanistan or in other countries like Syria and Libya, but when the established order has become destabilized, then conflict emerges and there's a scramble. Maybe, perhaps not. Maybe it's it's more amenable in terms of the how, how people interact with one another. But there could right. be a destabilizing effect because of the uncertainty and the, the destruction of social norms or social order has come about because of this instability. Exactly. And that's sort of what everybody expected in Afghanistan. I think to some extent it's what you've seen, except what's happened is that the, the social order was able to recreate itself fairly quickly um, in communities. But what wasn't able to create to to become so stable was the government. And so the challenge in you, I think you ask a really good question about democracy and the state and individual rights versus sort of this more communal understanding of rights is that is it 
were individuals willing to trade off the stability and the security that they felt in their communities for this larger notion of democracy. And in my research, I found some interesting things. So I found that um, you know, from analyzing public opinion data, I found that individuals who had stronger allegiances had had more confidence in their customary governing bodies of their communities were actually much more likely to support things like democracy and women's rights than in those communities that did not have as strong customary bodies. So it's this participation. So what I argue is that when individuals participate in customary governance and they actually have a positive experience with it and they're, they're, they feel like their voices are heard, that they're much more likely to view democracy in the state as a positive thing. And I argue that in Afghanistan, this is because, well, this is for a couple of reasons. This is something that's peculiar to the social institutions in Afghanistan. So the, the customary organizations tend to be much more egalitarian and um, participatory than you might find in other parts of the world. So one of the contributions that I've that I argue that I've made in, in my first book was that I sort of open up the black box of tradition. And a lot of people say, you know, traditional governance, they talk about chiefs, or they talk about headmen. And what I do is I try to open up that black box and say, okay, you know, not, not all chiefs are the same, not all traditional forms of governance are the same. Let's look at Afghanistan and see how, what are the rules that community, that, uh, that govern communities. And I found that the rules tend to be much more egalitarian than you'd find in, you know, chief in sub-Saharan Africa, where you really might have an individual who rules with an iron fist. So this makes things quite different from maybe other parts of the world. Um, but also this, this participation that individuals have in community and the trust that they have in their customary bodies also gives them a sense of protection. And not just against things like warlords, but actually against the state. So this explains this relationship is that individuals in Afghanistan, I think this is why you see this continued insurgency in the country, is that people do not trust the government at all. They feel that the government is actually the biggest source of corruption. The government is the biggest source of predation. So what individuals and communities are looking for is protection from that state. And so when they have, you know, customary bodies that operate effectively and efficiently and represent their interests, they're much more likely to support things like democracy and the government because they feel that they can engage it more comfortably because they have this sort of layer of protection between them and the state. And then there's a, a another element here is that, you know, we're sort of comparing, um, Chris Coyne has written a lot about this. He's an economist. I think you've talked to Chris. I did. Um, I had planned to bring him up in the conversation, but let's do it. Okay. So Chris talks about the Nirvana fallacy. And this notion that, you know, when you're comparing the current situation to, uh, you know, for an example, in Afghanistan or any country that's undergoing post, you know, post-conflict reconstruction, that you should development practitioners and state builders and government officials in these countries tend to compare the situation on the ground with an idealized version of an alternative. And so comparing, you know, traditional governance, whatever you might think of it, good or bad or ugly, to democracy is what policymakers did. And so when we think about what is democracy, we think of this beautiful thing where interests are represented and, and rules are observed and there's procedures and there's nice political parties and everybody gets along. I mean, of course, democracy is based on conflict, but you have this nice representation of interests. Well, what you had in Afghanistan was the ex this exact execution of the wonderful example of the Nirvana fallacy. Democracy in Afghanistan has been pretty much a disaster. And it's not because Afghans are not able to participate or Afghan culture is somehow antithetical to democratic norms. It's because the administration of elections has been utterly corrupt. Hmm. So when Afghans now think about elections, they think about the, you know, the most corrupt exercise that you could ask for. And the international community is the one who keeps pressuring the country to have these elections and hold, you know, if you, you won't get the aid unless you hold the elections and they keep holding the elections. In fact, there were parliamentary elections just a couple of months ago. They still can't even announce the results because there has been so much corruption in these elections and people are just devastated and people ran for parliament. We, you know, I've talked to some parliamentary candidates who ran on beautiful platforms and really wanted to protect their community interests. And they're just devastated because of all the corruption they've seen in the government. And they've completely lost hope. 
Jennifer, have you asked people what they think of democracy or when they heard the word democracy, what did they perceive it to be or what did they relate it to? This is a really interesting question. Um, so I actually did some research on this. I actually haven't published it, but I've got some interviews on this. And one of these days I'll get around to finishing this paper. <laughs> um, but uh, it's, you know, it, it, when people are talk about democracy in Afghanistan, it's much, it's not about politics. It tends to be on um, things related to popular culture and a different way of life. And so democracy means, you know, the freedom for girls to dress differently or uh, Western music um, or Western culture. It's very much associated. It's a concept that's very much associated with the West. And this is not just true of Afghanistan. I think it's true of a lot of other countries. Um, I spent about a month this summer in uh, Kyrgyzstan and uh, words like democracy um, have come to mean Anything that's sort of supported by the West um, and Western governments in the U.S. in particular, words like gender, words like civil society, they all have a very Western connotation, which also means that they're not indigenous. But that doesn't mean that these countries don't have things that, you know, people don't believe in gender equality or they don't believe in civil society. They have plenty of civil society. It's just that they don't use that term to describe it. And so um, it's very interesting to me, for example, when I was living here in Uzbekistan 15 years ago, uh, people would talk about we live in democracy now. And I'm thinking democracy, this is one of the world's most authoritarian countries. But the <laughs> word democracy <laughs> at that time meant what wasn't the Soviet Union, maybe sort of a more market oriented period. So the word democracy just meant something about relax relaxation of price controls. A reduction of the role of the government in, in sort of welfare provision, um, but it had much more to do with markets than it had to do with political institutions because they had absolutely no democratic uh, political institutions. But uh, in Afghanistan, it very much has this connotation of um, uh, not not necessarily political representation, but of a sort of Western culture. I would argue. Do they relate it, or do they worry about losing traditions, cultures, and also maybe their religion? I don't think so. Um, I mean, I think there's some rhetoric of that, right? Because, and it's not unique to Afghanistan. I think you even see this in the United States, right? We have outsiders coming in, importing ideas, and, and this is going to be somehow a threat to our culture and identity. But you do see much more, I think, of an urban-rural divide, um, as you see in a lot of countries. But the urban, these sort of urban educated, um, sort of Western looking ostensibly, although I would say that they're not all Western looking. I think a lot of Westerners sort of mistake, mm. <laughs> you know, people who speak English and who have been products of their aid organizations as holding similar values um, about many issues is often mistaken. I think the situations tend to be much more nuanced than that. Uh, we tend to see these things as outsiders, especially in sort of black and white terms. A number yeah. of people I interviewed on the podcast, such as um, Darren Asimoglu, they recommended or suggested that economic programs should include some form of political economy. And they lack that in a lot of universities and colleges. And what's your view on that? I know it could be somewhat biased given that's where you're coming from, but we miss out on it here when we're talking, when we're teaching economics, we don't necessarily go down the political economy route. Mm -hmm. You mean that, that, uh, that countries as part of a part of reform should look at political economy. Yeah. Or even, even in, um, even in all universities throughout say the Western world, you know, the, I'm, I'm sure there are quite a few out there that teach political economy, but some of them lack it or don't have them in their modules when they're lecturing oh, economics. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, I was just looking at the economics curriculum here because I'm talking to some colleagues actually about doing some university partnerships um, because this country is one of the things I haven't mentioned is that, um, you know, why am I here in Uzbekistan? Because that dictator who was so cruel to uh, so many, he passed away two, two years ago and his successor has really opened things up and the country's reforming at a really rapid pace. 
And so there's, it's quite exhilarating, exhilarating actually to be back and, and seeing many old friends and meeting with government officials who really want to push things forward. And one of the things they're very interested in is education and higher ed and partnering with universities and especially American or Western universities. And so one of the things we talked about is, um, you know, doing political economy, public policy, um, economic and economics education that really looks at incentives and sort of political economy issues rather than just, um, well, here it's still very Soviet notions of economics is what's taught. They really have not made the tr- transition from that many countries made 25 years ago uh, because the political reform was really stalled over the past 25 years. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would totally agree with that, <laughs> that, that these uh, universities need need more of it. And there's actually few people here doing political economy research. So the revolution that happened back in 2005 never wasn't successful at all. And it's only no, from the passing. Even a, no, it wasn't a revolution. Um, I, I'd probably get in trouble if someone heard me <laughs> say okay. that here. Um, it, but it wasn't, it was just a very localized uprising that never spread. Okay. Um, and so, so I think that kind of happened in Turkey as well. Yeah. So it was just in, in the city called Andijan. Um, but it never spread to to other cities, and the government really cracked down on civil society and, and you know anything that was uh, that involved Western um, you know democracy promotion, civil society NGOs, um, anything that came from the outside that was promoting those kinds of things. That's why I was unable to return in Western academics doing public opinion surveys or kind of ethnographic work. Even um, was unable to do research here. Um, you probably read Jenny Norberg's book, did you? On the Underground Girls of Kabul in Search of a Hidden Resistance in Afghanistan. I haven't read it. No, no, I was just I'm wondering, because you mentioned earlier on about gender differences in Afghanistan. Is that still there or even in Uzbekistan? I know they're different countries, but you said they have similar norms and traditions. Is that the case for girls in Uzbekistan as it is in Afghanistan? You know, the situation, I mean, it's a really interesting sort of uh, example of, um, you know, something that Asimoku and Robinson would talk about looking at these borders between these two countries. If you look at the Uzbek population that lives in Afghanistan versus the Uzbek population that lives in Uzbekistan, you find stark differences. Um, and this really has to do with the Soviet, uh, the, the very sort of coercive role that the Soviets had in uh, promoting gender equality in uh, former Soviet spaces. So, you know, in the 1920s, the Soviets, you know, famously made women burn their burqas and take them off. And, uh, you know, the hijabs were banned and women were really sort of forced into more Western clothing and Western um, appearances. You couldn't wear any kind of headscarf in public places. And, uh, but in Afghanistan, you found something very different and the government never really tried to get involved in this. Although there was a, <clears throat> a king in the, in the 19, uh, King Amanullah, who, uh, who ruled from 1918 to, ni- to the late 1920s. And he tried to uh, eliminate um, traditional clothing and uh, <laughs> ban the burqa and, and uh, promote gender equality and get rid of the bride price. And he was famously run out of the country for this because it was seen as sort of a, a reform from above rather than something coming from below. But you still have you know, major issues with, with gender equality inside of Afghanistan. But what you do see are norms that are changing. And I think that's how we have to think about things, that rather than aid programs promoting gender equality, um, individuals change. We, we can't think of these societies, and I think we tend to think of them as quite static but they're dynamic and they're changing and social norms change and globalization affects countries and education affects countries. And, and so, uh, you know, is the role of women the same in Afghanistan as it was 50 years ago? I would, I would argue that it's it's not. Um, You see more women educated. You see more women participating in public life. In fact, this afternoon I was talking to an an Uzbek um, uh, civil society, a human rights advocate. And she said, you know, our situation here in Uzbekistan is actually quite shameful. We used to have so many more women active in politics and in the public sector in the past you know, 15 years. We've seen a major reduction in that. She says, and, and, you know, we have women who are very well educated 
you know, there's compulsory education, you have 99% literacy rates. I mean, you have you know, a very well-educated population. You go to Afghanistan, she says, it's kind of a shame for us because in Afghanistan, you actually have many more women in, in as serving as governors and as ministers and in parliament than we actually have here. And I was, I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but she was actually right. I'm sure you, a lot of questions are floating around in your mind as you are introduced to new people or you have conversations with people regarding um, social norms or traditions or maybe inequalities that do exist in these countries. And like, what are the more kind of immersive questions that you'd like to tackle? Oh, I so <laughs> that you so haven't done so already. Yeah, there's so many of them. Um, one of the things I'm looking at here um, in Uzbekistan is I'm looking at all the reforms that are taking place, and I'm looking at you know why the government's reforming in certain sectors rather than others. This is sort of a more macro level question. Really interested, and in because it, it's happened so quickly and so unexpectedly, nobody expected these reforms to be taking place here. Uh, we're, we've been talking about, you know, so many commentators are talking about how democracy is is going downhill all over the world, and this is one place I wouldn't. It's not quite democratized, but it's certainly opened up in many, many spheres from where it was just two years ago. Um, I'm interested in, in communities and community governance and, um, you know, the ability of uh, community leaders to maintain social control um, and the, the legitimacy that they, they have. Because unlike Afghanistan, where you really have real self-governance, these customary forms of authority in this country and Uzbekistan were co-opted by the state and formalized by it. And I'm really interested in what effect that formalization had on legitimacy. Um, and I hear mixed things from, you know, field work that I do. And I'm then comparing that to Tajikistan, where I've also spent some time where the government's co-opted these customary organizations, but doesn't quite have the capacity, at least the coercive capacity that the government in Uzbekistan does. And so you see sort of an intermediate outcome in uh, Tajikistan, where uh, the government has sort of laid off uh, these customary authorities, but given them some uh, capacity to do things. And, and there you have, I mean, it's really interesting. You've got mass migration um, to, to Russia, mass labor migration. Okay. And uh, I was doing some public opinion surveys in, in rural Tajikistan and uh, it was funny, the survey firm asked me, they said, do you want a, you know, a 50-50 men and women sample? I said, well, of course, you know, when we're doing surveys, we want like a 50-50 sample because we assume the population sort of normally distributed 50-50 men and women. Mm. And they said, well, that's going to cost you extra. I said, why? They said, you know, because of migration, we're going to have to oversample men. I said, no, I just want a representative sample. I get the survey results back. Can you believe it? 70% women in the summertime. Wow. So only 30% of the population were men, which means that these women are ruling communities. So I actually have some survey data that I'm going through right now and looking at... The but yet they're underrepresented, underrepresented in government and that? They're underrepresented in formal government. But what okay. I'm finding is that at the customary level, they're actually taking over. And... So I can tell whether a community was led by a man or by a woman. And so now I'm doing some, I actually don't have my results back quite yet, but looking at the effects of whether uh, a governance outcomes of when a community is run by a woman versus run by a man. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Under, under such, and it, it's a fairly, you know, what we call a conservative uh, society where women have not had a huge role in the public sector, but all of a sudden because of this migration, they have become leaders of their communities. I, I know it's unfortunate that we're, we're having conversations like this about the effects of or the outcome of um, certain, say, organizations or firms or government or even the economy or stock market if there were more women in control as opposed to men. You know, it mm -hmm. is unfortunate that, that it comes to that rather than just looking at it from, you know, what the effects would be irrespective of gender. But that's the nature of of the the way it is now in terms of more males and maybe they might correlate it to crises and that women might be better at managing things. It would be, would be interesting to see what the social norms or what the communities would look like or how they are 
um, how the, how people within that community interact with each other on a social level and at, the, at an economic level and find out what the effects would be based on the gender of the leadership. Yeah. No, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's actually quite interesting that we have this data. We can look at these things and not only just look at, you know, one of the things I'm interested in is like public goods provision, whether you have a man or a woman leading, leading a community, you know, what kind of outcomes you have. Um, but also you can look at economic issues and household livelihoods. And of course, like the data I have is not perfect and there's a lot of endogeneity problems. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, you could, I think we could say something interesting. Why is there a mass migration to Russia? Is it because of seasonal work? Yeah, just because of unemployment and, you know, population growth. Uh, so this is, you know, primarily in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, but also in Uzbekistan. Um, you have mass migration. I think it's like, you know, uh, I can't remember the, but Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan actually are always sort of number one, number two for remittances as a percentage of GDP. So there's a lot of very interesting questions to look at here in Central Asia for a I'd love to know the geography of Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan is a landlocked country, is that correct? It's not only landlocked, it's double landlocked. Okay. <laughs> and so people here will tell you that uh, we're not just landlocked, we're double landlocked. And I don't know, do you know the other, the only other double landlocked country in the world? Go on. I don't. All right. It's Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein. Okay. So everybody who knows that, it's a very famous fact here. Okay. Wow. Um, so there's only two double landlocked countries. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and like that has, that obviously has economic consequences. Would it be very much a rely on local resources like coals or does it do a lot of importing of oil or gas? So they, there was a period during the period of this last leader, uh, his name was Islam Karimov. He promoted autarky as, uh, you know, he, I think he was trying to emulate what he thought the Koreans were doing, uh, you know, in, in the 50s, 60s and 70s and trying to, uh, promote local industries as, to spur economic growth didn't work out so well. Um, and so what this new leader has done is said, look, we're a double landlocked country. We're far from ports and we really need to be relying on our neighbors much more because without that, we don't have trade. We don't have economic development. And so the, the changes that you've seen here in the past couple of years since the country's really opened up is quite amazing. Okay. Um, yeah, but, uh, but the, you know, this country does have some natural resources, has some natural gas, um, some gold. Um, but it's actually one of the world's biggest producers of cotton, so agricultural resources. I've come across a theory in economics called the resource curse, and I'm just mm -hmm. wondering, um, would that have been seen as the case in Uzbekistan in the 50s and 60s, that they couldn't use a position of autarky to grow the economy, or would that event essentially be bad government or bad management in terms of the economy or the firms that have been maybe fo too focused on traditional methods that would become more obsolete? Yeah, no, I don't think, I mean, under the Soviet period, you know, this, this command economy, they, they weren't relying so much on natural gas and sort of the typical things that we would associate with the resource curse um, that don't involve um, high levels of, uh, you know, labor productivity that don't engage the labor market very much, right? So you tend to see this resource curse with things like oil and gas because you could have a country like Saudi Arabia or even to some extent, uh, you know, people have been worried this, worried about this with the neighboring country of Kazakhstan, which has substantial oil and gas. Um, you know, would this country be subject to the resource curse? Um, they've tried to avoid it consciously because they were aware that this has been a problem in other countries. Uh, Uzbekistan and Afghanistan and these other countries don't have as, they're not as resource rich, uh, so they've not really faced this problem. Jennifer, I'd love to know a bit more about you as a person and as a, an economist, if that's okay. Sure, sure. You've traveled a lot and mostly in Central Asia, as you put it, in terms of the countries where you are now and where you were recently. And I, I'm just wondering, how how does that affect you as a, a person and you're coming from, say, Afghanistan and Uzbekistan and back to the United States? Do you experience like a culture shock? Do you look at the choices that you have as a person in a supermarket and choose 
okay, what toothpaste am I going to pick today? Whereas they might only have one type of toothpaste where you are. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, yeah. do you, do you, are you kind of a better, do you think you're a better person because of your experience? No, I don't think that. <laughs> not a, not a better person by any stretch of the imagination. Um, probably more of a conflicted person. Um, you know, one of the things that I really enjoy is, um, you know, I love doing field work because field work gives me the opportunity to ask people questions and talk to people. And I know that many economists don't do field work. And I'm, you know, I'm a political scientist who dabbles a lot in economics. So I publish in some economics journals and, uh, um, my forthcoming, this book, this forthcoming book on property rights in Afghanistan is actually going to be published by an economic series at Cambridge. Um, so I sort of sit in both places. Um, you know, many economists do not look, they, do, they don't do field work. They don't really, and if they do, they do surveys. And I do a lot of ethnographic work in addition to surveys. And um, I, I love doing it because it gives me the excuse to talk to people and ask people questions and, and get in their business. And one of the blessings I really have in life is um, being able to research and teach in the community where I grew up. So um, I teach at the University of Pittsburgh, and I'm actually from Pittsburgh. And I know it's very rare in academia to be able to teach, uh, you know, at, at the place the place where you grew up. And I actually live a block away from the home that I grew up in, and I send my kids to the school that I went to as a child. Yes. And one of the things I love about this is uh, – being able to participate in my community. I studied community governance and it's interesting for me to see how my own community is governed. Mm. Um, and uh, so it's, it's interesting to, to see those, you know, how, how similar we are as human beings and our need for connection. That's something that I think we all have in common. And un unfortunately, uh, there have been some tragic outcomes in your community, the tree of life synagogue, um, I, I'm sure there's like having a democracy and having living in a capitalistic society doesn't mean that you rid yourself of these terrible events that people might stereotype the likes of Afghanistan to have when it comes to conflict in communities. Yeah. I don't mind if you want to elaborate or explain what I yeah, just mentioned no. there. That's okay if you're comfortable sure, with that. Yeah. yeah, no, it's been actually quite heartbreaking. Uh, because I grew up at that synagogue, the Tree of Life synagogue, where uh, the shooting took place. And I live right around the corner from it. And I knew several of the people who were killed in that uh, tragic event. And I think one of the hardest things for me personally, sort of going through this, um, is knowing that those things. And so this is, I think, the privilege that I have in studying the things that I do is, you know, I come in and out of Afghanistan and... I have seen horrible things there, just as any Afghan has. And um, many of us who work in Afghanistan, you, you spend enough time there and you see some horrible things. And when these events happened in Pittsburgh, of course, the first thing that I was reminded of was Afghanistan. And in fact, the weekend that that happened, I was hosting the major academic conference on Central Eurasia. I was actually hosting 400 scholars of Central Eurasia in Pittsburgh and um was as the shooting was just happening, I was leading about to lead a panel on field safety and research ethics. Um, and many of my Afghan friends were participating. And in fact, I was late to that panel because I, because the police were shutting down the roads right around the synagogue and I couldn't get to my panel on time and figured out what was happening right as I was beginning discussion. And I was so moved actually to have so many of my friends from Afghanistan there with me as I was finding out what was going on in my own community. And I'll never forget as long as I live looking at them in my own tears and, and they looked at me and they said, you know what, you have to carry on. And this is devastating. And we are so sorry. And this is unfortunately part of our life. And right now we're going to hug you and we're going to hold you and you're going to do this panel and you're going to get through this despite the pain that you're feeling, because that's what we owe ourselves because we can't let this kind of thing destroy us. And if we stop what we're doing, it means that they win. And, you know, we hear that all the time. We hear that all the time from politicians. We can't get in. We can't get in. And hearing this from my friends in such a personal way, at such a personal time, uh, was something that I will truly never forget. And so seeing this pain in my own community 
and the pain that's been so similar to what I saw when I was in Afghanistan has been hard because I think for me, I thought that I could leave that kind of pain and that kind of sorrow behind when I would leave. And this is the privilege I have by choosing to come in and out of it, by being able to come in and out of that country where so many of my Afghan friends don't have that choice. So I think that's been hard to come to terms with. Yeah. And also when we first made contact with one another, I think it was back in, oh, it could have been August, September, Jennifer. Again, we had to postpone a conversation or our interview. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Given the sudden passing of a colleague of yours, an economist that has done a, a tremendous work on climate change. Yes. So we lost um, one of my colleagues passed away. His name was Werner Troskin, and uh, he was a gifted, gifted economic historian and a dear friend. And um, we lost him very suddenly. And um, yeah, we had to postpone our conversation. So it's been a a hard couple of months. And uh, he was a brilliant colleague. And I think many of the people listening to this podcast will be familiar with his work on health issues and and climate issues and the environment. And he was, you know, one of the world's top economic historians and just such a brilliant mind and a great person and someone whose uh, laughter I will miss and continue to miss. Sometimes I, I just question, what are we doing all of this for, you know, and do you have any life principles or perspectives on things? You know, obviously what you're doing from from what I see is tremendous work. Um, whether you see that yourself because you're knee deep in it or do you know your purpose? Do you know the, the benefits that you're going to have, not only as your, for yourself, but for the, those people who you are affected, you're, you are affecting through your research and your work? Well, this is a question about life's purpose that I never expected on this podcast. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll start a new podcast with that question. I think you should. <laughs> I don't really have any good insights into this. I just have questions and more questions. And and I think that's, you know, as someone um, who's I'm immersed in the field and I'm immersed with people. And I think I just what I love is making connections with people and listening to people and um, being there for people. And um, I'm blessed to have so many people there for me, you know, when things go wrong, as I found out in Pittsburgh. And, you know, that we need to get out from away from our, our computer screens. And in this day and age, when we're so you know connected, but we're so unconnected, just think one of the things that I take away from my own research is the importance of community and human connection. And um, it's not something we really talk about very much in academia but it's something that's really central to me and you know maybe we be all we talk about you know mental stress and stress and depression among academics and um i don't know it's it's the sense of community that really exhilarates me uh, when i see it and when i experience it and when i hear people talk about the ways that they're able to do so much and the way they're able to overcome challenges and really seeing some of these, you know, poor, very poor countries like Afghanistan in a positive light mm-hmm. is that individuals are really able to come overcome such difficult, difficult challenges on their own without aid and without external assistance. And people in Uzbekistan who had lived under some of the world's most harshest repression are able to overcome that and find joy and meaning in their life and their communities and in the connections that they have. And that's something that I just really take with me. And it's something that I hope that I bring home to me as I sort of immerse myself in my own community. I don't know if that's a life lesson, but. <laughs> even even the discipline economics, a lot of people do not realize that it is a social science and it's to do with human connection. And what a lot of the textbooks out there, they actually missed a point on that today. That's a really good point. It's a social science. Right. We talk about the dismal science and the science of the individual, but understanding how those individuals come together. Right. Mm. Jennifer, would you have any book that you'd like to recommend? I'm going to obviously put your own book, Informal Order and the State of State in Afghanistan, up as a link on my website. But is there something that you would that you would highly recommend, be it fiction or nonfiction, academic that uh, or a biography that you could, would like to people to be introduced to? 
Sure. There's two books. In fact, I, I just recommended one of them this morning to a, uh, to a friend of mine here. Um, and it's Timur Koran's book called Private Truths and Public Lies on Preference Falsification. I think it's one of the most brilliant books that's, that's ever been written um, by an economist. And he explains, you know, these cascades, these sudden changes and shifts, why the Berlin Wall fell so suddenly. Um, and I, I think it's just, if people haven't read it, it's a classic. It's, I think it's been out for 20 years or so. Take, take a look. Nice. I think it explains so much of what we're seeing in our world right now. And the second book I'd like to re- recommend to people is uh, it was made into a movie. But it was the book that that got me to stop reading fiction. <laughs> I stopped reading fiction after I read Charlie Wilson's War. Charlie Wilson's War was made into a movie. I think many people saw the movie. But I'd really encourage all of you to read the book um, because the book is, is written by a journalist named George Cryle. And it is chock full of history, but also entertainment and incredible stories that will I stopped reading fiction after this because I realized that truth is very much stranger than fiction. And there's so much about the world that I don't know <laughs> that life might be too short for fiction. <laughs> Even if it wants you to take, take your imagination <laughs> off to places. Yes. Because I mean, if you read this book, you'll find that there's, I mean, wow, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> and I'm going to bring you into a little bit of fiction, but you can marry you with nonfiction if you want to. But if you could step into the DeLorean that featured in Back to the Future, <laughs> <laughs> where would you like to go to and who would you like to meet? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know. I'm really forward looking. Okay. <laughs> where do I want to go? And know? I'll, I'll find someone for you. Um, where would you like to go in the future then if that was the case? in the future you know i'd love to see these i'd love to see where governments are and where states are like 200 years from now right the technology of governance i think that's going to change quite rapidly you know 20 years 20 years from now i think one of the things i'd like to go back to is 1747 1747 was the founding of the afghan state and people may not know this the history of independent afghanistan is actually older than the united states Mm -hmm. um 1747 was the loya jirga that marked the founding of the Afghan state. And I would have loved to have seen this lawyer Jirga was at, was actually a meeting of tribal elders that established um, the first leader of Afghanistan, which be, what became Afghanistan. It wasn't called Afghanistan quite yet. And I would have loved to be there to see this process play out and to see some of the, the players and who they were, because many of them you know, went on to, to do pretty important things in the region. I think that's a moment that I would have loved to have observed to understand the conversations that went into the creation of this state. And uh, many of your listeners may also also may not know that Afghanistan was never colonized. So unlike most of the developing world where you have these deep colonial residues, Afghans are pretty proud to have not have resisted colonialization hmm. and have been independent for quite a long time. Have you ever heard of Jim Rogers, the investor? think so but i'm not i'm not sure he traveled around the world of, i don't know maybe 15 years ago and he went to every country and i'm sure he went into uzbekistan but he mm-hmm. came across some countries that were starting to show signs of growth and development and he okay. bought I, I don't know whether it's uzbekistan but there was something like 20 stocks in the stock market and he decided to buy them all all shares, <laughs> not, he bought shares in all companies. Okay. Are there opportunities? We don't want to be opportunistic, but are there opportunities okay. for locals or for foreign people if they can access, say, the stock market, for example, in Uzbekistan or Afghanistan? Or how do you see things there? Yeah, no, I think there's real opportunities and um, in, in for economic growth, for investment. In fact, I'm sitting actually in a law firm uh, that some f- a, f- a friend of mine actually set up, and it's one of the countries because uh, they have a very nice internet connection. Uh, <laughs> thank you to Sentinel Law Firm that's hosting me right now, and I'm just waving to a young lawyer. She's uh, uh, sees me through the glass window. Um, they they do a lot of uh, with private investment and a lot of foreign companies that are t- trying to invest here, and they broker a lot of those investment arrangements. And so whether it's over land issues or agriculture or airlines that are trying to invest. There's a lot of opportunities here. So uh, 
you know, any kind of industry, especially light industry manufacturing, I think would be a really good op- investment opportunity here, given uh, sort of the labor market. But in- internet technology, um, there's very high levels of human capital here. So it'll be really interesting to see what the IT scene here looks like in a few years. I think it's quite promising. And, you know, one of the things that the bright spots about Afghanistan, things that I think that are just so unseen to so many people is that there's parts of the country that have not ha- have been so affected by war as others. You know, there's some parts of the country in the South and the Pashtun heartland that have been, you know, ravaged by conflict. But there are other parts of the country where you can see so much commerce and trade lifting up people. And the, the changes I've seen there over the past 15 years have just been amazing. Uh, and that's really been driven by private, by entrepreneurs um, people who trade, people who invest in agriculture, people who invest in their communities. And it's something that we don't hear about because we think of the country as being so poor and so dependent. But uh, there are peaceful pockets of that country that have been lifted up enormously by uh, entrepreneurs. And that's what I'm seeing here right now in Uzbekistan where the country has opened up. People are coming back from overseas, you know, the diaspora who may have left during the past 25 years, they've come back and people are investing like gangbusters here. So it's really exciting to see. Really exciting. Jennifer, one more question, if that's okay. Sure, I'd sure. love to know, given your work, your writing work, do you have any advice that you'd like to give our listeners? Maybe even one or two pieces of advice regarding how you approach your writing. Oh, about, pro- you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, approaching writing, it's, I think it's just don't be afraid to change your mind, Right. And to say that you're wrong, it's a really easy thing to say now, but man, um, no research design goes, uh, you know, I think the best research designs that we make should be spoiled by reality. And, uh, you know, in terms of writing, it's just, it's just being patient and, um, but you know, you can't do it, I think, without two things. It's love of the topic, but also indignation. And uh, I read that one. It was a political scientist, Barbara Geddes. She wrote a book uh, on research methods called, I think it's called Paradigms and Sandcastles. And she says, how do you find a good dissertation topic? It was a, sort of a footnote in one of her papers. And she says, you have to be indignant. And I kind of love this. Um, but it's this passion and love for your topic as well. It was just a little bit of indignation about what other people have, have written because it's based on your gut, right? And your intuition, and sometimes I think we need to trust that as we do our writing, but also not be afraid to say we're wrong about it and to let the data actually tell us that we're wrong. And Jennifer, I can see that in all your work as well and your conversations that I've had with you today, your passion for the, what you do. <laughs> Thanks. I, I cut across you. You were about to say something, were you? No, I just want to say thank you. It's a kind, very kind of you. Jennifer, look, I really appreciate it. And thanks very much for joining me on the Economic Rockstar podcast. If uh, you'd like to check out all the books, links and resources mentioned by Jennifer, check out economicrockstar.com forward slash Jennifer. I think I'll just leave it at Jennifer. Do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Not Jennifer Lopez. Jennifer. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, thanks, Jennifer. Thank you very much for joining me, and I appreciate that you are an economic rock star. Uh, <laughs> I can't wait to tell it there. All right, take care. This was real, a real honor, so I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot, and I really appreciate it too. Have a nice holiday, and I hope you get back home soon, safely. Bye. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Thanks a Bye. lot. Bye. 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 Economic Rockstar is a free podcast that does not exclude anyone from listening as long as they have a device to listen, download or stream. I have many listeners from all parts of the world and I truly am pleased to know that the Economic Rockstar podcast unites all of you through the common theme of economics. I strive to commit to releasing an episode each week and aim to develop Economic Rockstar into much more than just a podcast. Patreon is a platform that gives you, the listener of the Economic Rockstar podcast, the opportunity to express your appreciation of the show by committing a financial reward for as little as $1 a month. 
Patreon allows me, the creator of the Economic Rockstar podcast, to be rewarded and paid by you so I can continue with the running costs of the show and to reinvest and expand the podcast into other platforms or mediums in the future. To find out more on how you can help the Economic Rockstar podcast and have your name added to the supporters list on my website, please check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar or visit the supporters page on the Economic Rockstar website. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.